So you guys know that Jesus and his disciples were kind of vagabonds in a sense. They didn't have a particular home. In today's story, they've come into the city of Capernaum. And most likely, um, someone has offered to put them up because Jesus is at a house, probably with the disciples, and Peter is out and about in town. We don't know what he was doing. We just know he's outside the house. He might be at the market getting food. We don't know. Whatever he's doing, he's there. He's doing his thing. And out of the corner of his eye, he sees two guys walk up. And they probably have some sort of official-looking Jewish clothing on. And he's like, oh boy, what's going on? So these guys walk up to him and they say, hey, Peter, does your teacher pay the tax? So that's how our story starts. And if we're going to really climb in and understand it, I think it's important that we understand what this tax was. What, what is it that he was asking Peter to pay? And who was it that was collecting this tax from them? And so let's look at the tax itself first. Um, this tax was a, an annual tax and it started over 1,500 years before this happened. It's something Moses instituted during the Exodus, that it was a, an annual tax that every male above 20 had to pay um, in order to help provide for the needs and furnishings of the temple, or at that time the tabernacle. But it carried on so that when Israel had the temple, people would pay it then. So it came to be known as the temple tax. And so it was a flat amount, so it didn't matter how much money you made or didn't make, it wasn't a percentage, it was just everyone had to pay every male over 20, the certain flat amount. And it was half a shekel or two drachmas, which in today's equivalent would be about $180, okay? So think about someone come up and asking for $180. Now to you, that may not be, you know, you may be a high roller, may not be a big deal, like oh, whatever, pull out 180 bucks, give. To some of you guys, maybe it is a big deal. It's like over the course of a year for Jesus and his disciples, it's probably not a huge insurmountable some, but it might be a lot to just at a moment's notice have to cough up, which is why Jesus got a fish to cough it up for him. Um, and so, by the way, if you're, if you're listening online, this, just so you know, this is being recorded on June 27th. So if you're listening to this in July, you might need to account for inflation that 180 may be like 5,000 or something like that. Um, so, but anyway, about $180 is what we're talking about annual fee that everyone was expected to pay. Now, it wasn't required. These were not Romans. This tax would have not been enforced in a legal sense, um, but it is something that a Jewish respectable man would be expected to pay. So that's what's going on here, and Peter basically says, um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll pay it. Um, he's talking to these guys that are tax collectors. By the way, these guys are, they're probably not Pharisees. I think it's easy to jump to that assumption. We've seen so many times where the Pharisees ask Jesus a question to try to trap him, right? These guys are almost certainly not Pharisees. And we know that because when the Pharisees are involved, um, the text usually specifies that, right? Um, so these guys are not trying to trap him. Most likely they're not trying to um, set them up for failure. They're probably guys that are just legitimately asking, right? Because Jesus, again, he's transient, right? So most likely at this time of year, it was an annual tax, and it was the time of year these two dudes were in charge of going around and collecting the tax. Um, and Jesus and his followers don't live in that city, so it's just a legitimate question. Does, does your teacher pay the tax? Can we expect that from him? I don't know if Peter just panicked and said yes before he asked Jesus or what, but for whatever reason, he says yes, um, and he goes back to Jesus. Look in Matthew 17, verse 25. Let's read this. He said, yes, 
And when he came into the house, it's like Jesus, because he's God, knew what had happened. He spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? So Jesus poses this question like, do you think we should have to pay this tax? And he gives an illustration. If someone is a king and he owns all the land and everything in it, he's the absolute monarch, is he going to charge his son taxes for the needs of the kingdom? Probably not, right? He's probably, his son's going to be exempt from that. But then Jesus continues, right? When he said from others, verse 20, sorry, 26, Jesus said to him, then the son's, are free. So Jesus says the sons don't have to pay a tax. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for yourself. So the first lesson we learn is that the more often you fish, the more money you can make. Okay, so let's just get that out of the way up front. Just a real practical lesson we get from this text. Seriously, I do kind of wonder like, I wonder if Peter told that story to the guys, you know, like the guys sent him off. He comes back with the shekel because half a shekel each, half for Jesus, half for Peter. Peter gives it to the guy, right? And I wonder what the guy thought, you know. I mean, this is just speculation. Like we don't know what that, if Peter even told that story. But if he did, you know, he may have told them what happened. And if he did, I would imagine the test collectors were like, I don't know, this story seems kind of fishy, right? They'd be like, well, how would, how would a fish even know to... Where would he have learned to go swallow a coin? Fish don't see the value of, of coins like that. Why would he even do that? Peter's like, hey, maybe he learned it in his school. I don't know. Some of you guys are rolling your eyes at my dad jokes, but you have to admit I've got you hooked now, don't I? Yeah? All right. All right, so that's the story. It is kind of a crazy story. Peter tells a story. I want you to imagine a different story with me for a minute. Um, Suppose that you're a young man, um, you've graduated high school and it's time for you to go to work and so you decided to work for your dad and your dad happened to own, happens to own a cabinet shop. He's got a crew of about 10 guys and they build cabinets for people and so you decide you're going to go work for your dad. You've been doing that for a couple years, just kind of one of the guys, one of the employees, just working like anyone else would. Well there comes a day when for whatever reason, your dad is just kind of frustrated with the employees because they keep losing or breaking all the drills. And he doesn't know what it is about this, if guys are stealing them or what's happening to them, but he just gets sick of it. And he says, all right, that's it. From now on, stop what you're doing. Everyone has to supply their own drill. You can use the saws. I'll, I'll obviously supply the material and all that, but everyone has to have their own drill. That particular tool, that's on you. Now imagine you're the son And your dad basically says, everyone, stop what you're doing, go get a drill. So all the other employees, they stop, they put their stuff down, they go get in their cars or trucks, they head to Home Depot. What do you do? You're the son, right? I mean, your dad and kind of you as an heir of the business, right, of your dad, your dad owns everything. He owns the shop, he owns the business, he owns the drills. Everything he has is, in a sense, yours as well because he's your father. So you're like, I, I shouldn't have to go buy my own drill. I'll just use one of these drills. After all, they all belong to my dad. But what would happen if you chose not to go get a drill like everyone else? Well, you wouldn't really be seen anymore as truly identifying, right, as one of the true employees just like everyone else. Uh, You could hang on to that right 
And it would probably be a little offensive. It might strain that relationship. You wouldn't be able to identify with the other workers. There might be some bitterness there. Or what you might choose to do in wisdom is to say, you know what? In order not to offend and cause a relational tension with all the other guys, even though I could hang on to that right and call this drill my own, I'm going to go buy one just like everyone else. And that's essentially what we see Jesus doing here. He said, I don't have to pay this tax, Peter. I mean, my father owns that temple that the tax is for. Also, the world that it sits on. He and I created all of it. It all belongs to us. We do not owe a tax to anyone. But in order not to give offense, we are going to choose to pay this tax. And that's kind of the question we ask ourselves in this story, right? Is why did Jesus agree to pay this tax? One of the things I like to do when, when the kids are in the service is ask them to respond to me to kind of keep them hooked or engaged. So um, if you're like under 10 or so, I'm going to ask you, are you listening? And you're going to say, yes, Pastor Kai. Ready? Kids, are you guys listening? Okay, that's not going to work. That is not going to work. Let's try that again. Like, you guys, this is a fun story. You know, we got some fish. We got some good dad jokes, right? Come on. Kids, are you listening? I appreciate the youth chiming in too. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for helping there. Very good. All right. This tax would have been kind of like when we passed the offering plate. Kids, have you guys seen maybe your parents when we passed the offering plate or someone next to you? put money in there, right? That's not required. No one's enforcing that you do that. But it is kind of expected that as part of God's people, as part of a church, we contribute to the physical and financial needs of the church. So that's what's going on here. But Jesus is asked if he's going to contribute to the temple tax. And he chooses to do it even though he doesn't have to. So why? Well, the first answer we've basically already given, which is he was doing it to avoid offending people. He said that straight up, right? In order not to give offense, go and do this and pay the man. Now, this had to have been a little shocking for Peter, right? I mean, if you've been following along with us in the book of Matthew, it might even be a little shocking for you to hear Jesus say, Peter, let's just pay this because we certainly wouldn't want to offend anyone. Have you been following Matthew at all? Like, Jesus' life is nothing more than a series. That's nothing more than that. Jesus' life is a series of offenses to people, right? He's constantly offending people. He's going out of his way to say things that offend people. So now, why all of a sudden is he going, well, let's not give offense to anyone, right? We ought to be asking ourselves this question. In Matthew 10, Jesus said he did not come to bring peace but a sword, Right? Just last week in our text, when their disciples were unable to cast out a demon, Jesus responded, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear up with you? That doesn't sound like the words of a man who's really worried about offending people, right? So why is this different? I think there are a few ways we could answer this question. One of them is the audience, right? Again, these guys were not Pharisees trying to trap him. They were probably well-meaning dudes just trying to do their job and collect this tax. One commentator, R.J. Bank, Banks, noted that there was a settled hostility in the Pharisees versus these guys who were likely genuinely seeking information concerning Jesus' attitude to their customary practice. So there was no need to say something that might offend these guys. Another commentator, R.T. France, said in this situation, compliance, even though not necessary, would do no harm, and to flout it would serve no useful purpose. So there was no need 
to push back against this question about whether or not he would pay the tax, and he chose not to in order to avoid offending people. Now, that we're going to spend a lot of time looking at that, but before we do, i got to give a disclaimer. There are times as Christians when we are going to offend people. The gospel is offensive to all of us. The gospel tells us that we do not measure up to God's standards. That is going to be offensive. So there are going to be times as Christians when it's necessary and unavoidable that our words and our actions bring offense to people. Now, having said that, let's set that aside for a second and focus on today's text. Because what we see in today's text is Jesus going out of his way and laying his rights aside in order not to offend people. So just like it's true that if we're truly following Jesus, we're going to offend people, it's also true that if we're never making an effort to avoid offending people, we're not following the example of Jesus and the apostles. We don't just see this desire to avoid offending people in Jesus. We see it in Paul as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul's addressing this issue, which is a very contentious issue in that day and age among the church, of whether or not Christians should eat meat if the meat comes from an animal that's been sacrificed to an idol at a pagan temple. Because some Christians would say, man, that, that meat is like tainted, right? That meat should not be consumed. We shouldn't purchase that meat because we're in a roundabout way kind of supporting that sacrificial system to this pagan God. So a lot of Christians say, we shouldn't do that. Paul actually says, hey, you know what? It's fine, right? Paul says, my conscience is completely clear to do that. I know that I'm not giving recognition or respect to the God or the sacrifice behind where that meat came from. And so I can eat that, right? He says the food, the kingdom of God basically is not a matter of food and drink. It's okay. But what's really interesting about how Paul tackles this issue is this. He spends way less time answering the question of whether or not one can eat meat sacrificed to idols. And he spends a lot more time focusing on how to handle such a disagreement between the church. Paul basically says some people are going to be troubled by that. Their conscience is going to be conflicted and they're going to feel in their heart like to eat that meat would be a sin. And so you need to be considerate of that person. Paul is more worried about how the church handles the disagreement than he is the disagreement itself. Does that make sense? He's more worried about how they treat each other in the midst of what might be a disagreement than he is on the issue Itself. First Corinthians 8 9, Paul says, But take care that this right of yours, in other words, you have the right to eat that meat. It's not a sin to eat that, eat that meat. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. A few verses later, chapter 8, verse 13, he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again. Man, Paul was willing to do a lot there. I don't know if I could say the same thing. I will never eat meat again lest I make my brother stumble. A chapter later in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul's talking about how he takes this approach in evangelism that when he's around Jewish people, he acts like a Jew and probably means dietary things, like he doesn't eat pork, he doesn't eat things or do things that he knows are going to cause unnecessary offense to a Jewish culture. But when he's around Gentiles, 
he'll, he'll, he'll grab the bacon, right? He'll, he'll, he'll eat the stuff that they eat. He says, to the Jews, I became Jew. To the Gentile, I became a Gentile. 1 Corinthians 9.22, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So in light of this, in light of Jesus going out of his way and laying aside his rights to avoid giving unnecessary offense, I want us to take a few minutes to consider some modern day application of this idea. So how many of you guys were in New York a couple weeks ago? Handful of you guys, keep your hand up if you converse with someone who is uh, Muslim. All of you, right? Wow. Okay, so you guys know, um, some of you may not, that in, in Muslim culture and belief, which their belief and their culture is all kind of mixed, um, they do not eat pork, just like the Jews um, do not eat pork today because they thought that that was an unclean food. We now know on this side of the cross that all those things are permissible, but it would be a really bad idea if you're trying to minister to a Muslim and you serve, you know, pork loin at a dinner when you have them over, right? That, that you're giving an unnecessary offense that's avoidable. You can avoid that offense by just eating something else. Same would be true if you have some neighbors you invite over and you know one of them is a vegetarian. It's probably not idea to bust out the Traeger and make your best brisket, right, for that meal. It's probably better to be respectful of that, even though you have the right to eat brisket, and you should when they're not around. Um, I'm just kidding. But, but you should lay that right aside for the sake of loving your neighbor, right? Um, how we dress can have a, implications here. If I were to come up here on Sunday morning and I were to wear like a white tank top and like ratty shorts and flip-flops, right? And, you know, hadn't taken a shower in a week and just look kind of kind of ratty and kind of grungy, that would probably cause some of y'all some distraction and maybe even some offense. Some of you might see that and think, man, that sure doesn't look like he cares a lot about what he's doing today. He doesn't look like he's being respectful of what's going on here, right? Um, just like if I'm going to go preach at another church, that's one of the questions I often ask is, I ask the pastor, what do you normally wear? And I'm not a suit and tie guy. It's not my thing. I, I you know, I just... I don't, I don't like wrapping something around my neck and cinching it tight. I don't know why. It's the most natural thing in the world, but I don't do that. Um, but if I go to a church and that's what the pastor usually wears, I'm going to, you know, dig to the bottom of my closet and find the tie and, and do that because I don't want to give unnecessary offense. It's not worth creating an issue over. I have a right not to, you know, moderately strangle myself while I'm preaching, but I'll lay that right aside for the sake of someone else. Kids, are you guys still listening? Thank, man, you guys are on point. I like this. I like this. Eventually the adults are going to do it too. So it'll catch on. Kids, I want you to think about this. Imagine this situation. Most of you guys probably have siblings. Imagine you're at dinner and there's a rule at your house. We have this rule at our house. Imagine a lot of people do that if you eat all of your dinner and we have a dessert such as ice cream or pie or something like that, in order to get the ice cream or the pie, you have to what? You have to eat everything on your plate. And if you don't eat everything on your plate, that's fine. That's your choice, but you're not going to get any ice cream. Now, let's just imagine that it's you and one of your siblings, and you ate everything on your plate. And you're like, yes, I get some ice cream. Now, let's suppose you have a sibling who's younger, maybe a four or five-year-old sibling who, you know, was messing around or didn't like the food and didn't eat everything on, your, on her plate. And so now, 
Mom brings out the ice cream. It's like, okay, it's time to eat ice cream if you guys want some. Now you're kind of in a tough situation, right? Because you earn the ice cream, right? It's your right to take that ice cream because you've done some things that have earned that right for you. But you know good and well if you do that and your sister has to sit there and watch you eat that ice cream while she doesn't get any, she is going to have a meltdown, right? It's going to be a miserable night for her. One thing you might choose to do in order not to give that offense is just to not mention it and forgo the ice cream, right? Now you have the right to it, but that might be one way you could apply this truth today. Same goes with the toy. If one of your siblings is playing with a toy that's yours, right? You have the right to say, hey, that's mine. Give it back. But maybe in order to preserve and protect your friendship and relationship with your sibling, you might decide to just let them play with it, even though it's yours, and lay that right aside for the sake of the relationship. A good example of this for adults might be alcohol. We know that in Scripture, alcohol is not outright forbidden. Um, Many of you probably drink alcohol in this church, and that's fine. You have the right to do that, right? But if you have some new friends over and you don't know where they stand with that issue, it might be a good idea to leave the bottle of Jack in the pantry, right? It might be a good idea to not bring that out when you don't know where they stand and you might give some unnecessary offense. And is it really, is it really worth it when you don't know how they're going to respond to that and how they feel about that? We could apply this to the issue of masks. I'm just kidding. We've all had enough of that. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> We could talk about political discussions, though. I think it's super relevant for this. Political opinions and discussions and arguments and stances and signs have a tendency in our culture to drive wedges between people. So I'll tell you how I apply this as a pastor. This is not necessarily me saying, you should all do this, you should do the same thing. But just one, ex- one example of how I apply this is, you will likely never see a political sign in my yard or, on, or a sticker on my car. And it's not because I don't have opinions or beliefs about how I should vote or even who I think Christians should vote for. I have those opinions, but I have found that when you put a someone puts a sign in their yard or a sticker on their car, it creates a kind of combative attitude between that person and someone who believes and thinks differently politically. And I've decided for me, that's not worth it. It's not worth creating that barrier and that source of potential tension when that could prevent me from having a good relationship. But that could cause That could cause relational tension and difficulty in something. For me, I've decided it's just not worth it over a party or a candidate. I would rather lay that right aside for the sake of unity among the church and not create a barricade or stumbling block in that relationship. Again, I say this, this is not a biblical command that I'm drawing a straight line towards you with this as a thing that you should have to do. But something I would say that you should consider is maybe it's not a great idea to engage in certain political conversations where there's a lot of charge and there's a lot of contentiousness. Maybe it's not a good idea to engage those conversations on a public forum like social media. Yes, you have the right to do that, but where is that going to get you? Where does that usually lead? 
These are questions we should be asking ourselves. Does that potentially do more harm than good to throw the sign in the yard, to throw down a post like that? Here's the reality. Oftentimes, how we handle disagreements is way more important than the issue itself, right? How we handle, we can disagree politically, we can have those conversations, it's fine, but how we handle ourselves and how we treat people who disagree with us is probably way more important than that issue itself on a political level, right? Because here's the deal. If you get into a um, contentious discussion over someone over an issue like that, you get crossways with them, now you guys are at odds, there's bitterness there because of how you've handled yourself in that disagreement. What happens when that person's mom passes away next week? Well, now they don't really want to see you. And you as a Christian may feel a brother or sister, hopefully feel the burden to be there for them, to express your condolences, to, to take them a meal. But now you may be the last person they want to see. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? Now there's going to be times when maybe it is. But these are questions we need to ask ourselves as we consider how to apply this truth. So the first reason Jesus decides to go ahead and just pay the tax is just to avoid unnecessary offense. The second reason we see is really a bigger reason, right, that might be easy to overlook, but Jesus paid this tax because he was one of us. Because he was a man, part of mankind, just like us. This is a doctrine that's been very, very, very important for the church since its beginning. And it, I think it's kind of funny that the, the position these tax collectors are in, right? These, these poor guys, they didn't know they were asking God to pay tax on their temple, <laughs> you know? Like, they, they weren't aware of that. They were just doing their job. But like, you got to figure someone's going to give them a hard time. And have, right? Hey, remember that time when you tried to get the creator of the temple and the owner of the earth that sits on to pay a tax on it? Remember that, right? Like, it's just kind of silly that these guys are asking the creator of the universe and, 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 and the minerals that the, the bricks and stones that went into the temple are made of, he created all of it and they're asking him if he's going to pay a tax on it, right? But there's kind of a, an irony in that that's beautiful too, right? That Jesus actually did walk on the earth he created and he did pay that tax just like you or I would have. Because we believe, what we believe as Christians is that Jesus existed eternally at the Father's side. Jesus was not created like human beings are created. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. But at the right time, God sent Jesus to become a man. Fully man, just like you and I. In the early church, there was a lot of contention about this. Was Jesus fully God, fully man, like 50% God, 80% man? Who was Jesus as far as his godness and his manness? And in the Nicene Creed, they came up with this statement that they just said, this is it. This is what it means to believe in Scripture, to believe what the Scripture teaches about Jesus and him being man and God. It says that Jesus is of the essence of the Father. In other words, he's, he's of the same stuff as God, nothing subtracted from God the Father. Of the same essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, 
very God of very God, begotten, not made. And the reason that Jesus being man is so significant is because it is man who sinned and needed to make amends for our sins before God. Sin was not a God problem. Sin was a man problem. In order to truly be one of us and represent us before God, Jesus had to become one of us. Go back to the dad working in the cabinet shop illustration. Jesus is not the guy who said, nah, I ain't got to worry about that. My dad owns everything. I'll just use one of these drills. Jesus is the guy who laid his rights aside to fully become one of us in every sense that that means. It was man's debt to God. Man needed to make amends and make a payment for the sin that mankind had made. So Jesus became a man in order that he might die to pay that penalty and save us from our sins. He laid those rights aside. One of my favorite passages about this is in Hebrews because it, it uses words about Jesus that, that seem kind of like a paradox, that seem kind of like, can Jesus really do that? Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Right? How can Jesus learn something, right? Jesus is all-knowing. What does Jesus possibly have to learn? Well, because he became a man, just like we learn obedience, he, in a sense, learned obedience in a way that he did not know, at least experientially, before he became a man. He became one of us and learned obedience just like we have to. And in being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe. How can we say Jesus was made perfect? Wasn't Jesus already perfect? Doesn't Jesus always been perfect? How can he be made perfect? Because in order to be the perfect Savior that we needed, he needed to be not just God, but man. In order to, to sacrifice himself and pay our penalty, he needed to become a man in order to be able to die because God is eternal and cannot die a death. But Jesus became man. He truly became one of us in every sense that that could possibly mean. This whole story points us to this bigger issue of Jesus giving up his rights, laying them aside in order to save us. And that truth ought to impact our willingness to lay our rights aside for the sake of our brethren. If Jesus was willing, though, he could have claimed and held on to his rights as God and not paid that tax. If he was willing to let that aside as God, can we not relax some of our rights in order to be considerate of how holding on to those rights might make others to stumble? We're going to close with this passage. This is, uh, it's not going to be on the screen, but it's Philippians chapter 2. It says this. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was in very form God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even 
death on a cross. Jesus was willing to lay his rights and his life down to restore our relationship with himself and to the Father. Would we consider that and learn to do likewise with our neighbors and church members? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this story and how, just how timely it is and with the polarization and contentiousness of our society and even in the church. God, would we really take this to heart and consider it? Would you help us to consider and ask ourselves what rights we could lay aside in order to avoid unnecessary offense out of love for our neighbors and for the sake of the gospel? Would you help us to be honest with ourselves about that and consider how we walk in light of what you've done for us? In Christ's name, amen.